Today, I want to start off by asking the question, what is a Christian? Christian. What, what does it mean to say Christian? I mean, like, we, hate, we hear Christianity all the time. We would say we are Christians. But what does that word mean? Do we really talk about what this means to be a Christian or what it looks like? And, and I think it's easy for us as people to say, well, to be a Christian, let's just look in the Bible. The Bible has the answer on what it looks like to be a Christian, which it does. The problem is, is that the Bible, nowhere from cover to cover of the Bible will you find the word Christian within there. It's just not there because the term Christian didn't come into existence until like the late third century after the Bible had already been written. Instead, what you will find is a different word. What is, it, what is a disciple? And to be a Christian is to be a disciple, and, and that's what it is. So you will see this word a lot of times. What is, it, what is a disciple? To be a Christian is to be a disciple. And whenever we look into one of the Gospels, it becomes terrifyingly clear, just, a, just very obvious, what a disciple looks like. And even Jesus, at one point in time in a conversation, right before he dies on the cross, looks at his disciples and says, Hey guys, this, this is going to be what characterizes you. This is it. He says, he says right here, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Here we go. Coming up by this, this is going to be what characterizes you as followers of me. If you love one another. That's it. And in the same conversation, he goes on to say, and you know how you're going to love one another is the same way that I loved you. You're going to love each other the same way that I loved. Now, here's the problem is that every single one of us in this room, we feel like we know something about love. And we do. And, and we all feel as though we have experienced a great amount of love. And we have. But Jesus said, this is how you're going to know. This is how people are going to know. You're going to love people the way I loved you. And the problem is, is whenever we look into the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you look at the way Jesus loved, it's a little bit terrifying. If you really look at it, really digest it in, it's a bit terrifying. It's inconsistent. And, and then whenever you look at the way Jesus loved and really all the stuff that he was having to mess with, there, there was a, just a tension around all of it. In, his, in the current culture that he lived in, there was just a tension around the way Jesus loved. And you look at it and you come up with four things. It was messy. It was inconsistent. It was unfair. And it was confusing. And you just, and because there was this tension, because of all these things that Jesus was having to wrestle with, we look at it, and it's easy for us to just blow through it, but really looking at it contextually, whenever Jesus showed love to people the way he did, it didn't make sense. It was messy, it was inconsistent, unfair, and confusing. And all of us, we feel this tension. We don't feel this tension a lot of times whenever we talk about how Jesus wrestled with it, but there are many different areas where we wrestle with it today. One of the most common areas, uh, and I'm not going to go too much into this, but one of the most classic areas where we feel this tension right now is in the conversation of homosexuality in the church. I, I, I mean, there, it's, it's such a hot topic. We have churches on one end that affirm it. You have churches on the other end that condemn it. And, and honestly, I've just brought it up. 
And every single one of you guys in this room have your own thoughts, have your own opinions on exactly how we are to show the love of Christ to homosexual people. And the thing is, is that there will be people in this same exact room right now who have the, sa- the exact opposite viewpoint as you. And, and so we stand on opposite ends, both proclaiming this is how Jesus would love this person, and, and we're completely on opposite ends of the spectrum. And there's a tension within us. There's an argument within us. There's a problem within us. The same holds true whenever we talk about what Jesus has to say about uh, getting divorced and remarried. We, we look at scriptures, and it's painstakingly clear, obviously, that, I mean, div- what Jesus has to view on divorce and remarriage. And whenever we have just blunt, honest conversations about divorce and remarriage, it's awful. It is terrible. And if you are sitting in, in here listening to a message about divorce and remarriage, it's, it's terrible, especially if you have been divorced or remarried. It's a bit like having a root canal without any sort of Novocaine, right? It's horrible. It's just terrible to sit through. And yet every single time we sit and listen to things or messages like that, we come out the same. We say, oh, that was, that was terrible. It was awful. But I'm so glad I heard it. So glad I was there. It was so agonizing, but we went home and had a conversation that we never had before. It was, it was terrible. I felt so condemned, yet I gained insight as to why I struggle the way I do with my marriage. I, I feel so bad. I feel so condemned for feeling this way because this sin has been a part of my life just even so recently. Is it okay if I still serve at the church? I, yeah, I guess so. You see, there's a tension there, Right? There's a hard tension there. There's a hard tension that we have to battle with. And whenever you look into the scriptures and you look into the teachings of Jesus, this same tension was there because Jesus was having to deal with very similar issues. And, And whenever you look at Jesus, it was not the same. At times, he seems to be so forgiving of people, and at times, it seems like he's holding every single person accountable to everything they've ever done. At times, it seems harsh, and at times, he seems very kind. At times, he points out sin, point blank, and at times, he just ignores it altogether. And see, there's, there's a tension there because of just how inconsistent it seems. And here's the deal. All of us in this room, we are tempted to resolve this tension as much as we possibly can, because we do not like this eerie feeling of tension in the middle. But if you resolve it, you give up something very, very important. This is exactly why people didn't like Jesus. It's what drove people crazy about him, that he was comfortable with this, that he was able to minister through this. And we dare not ever walk away from it. Even though it is messy, even though it is inconsistent, confusing, and unfair, we dare not ever walk away from this tension. Um, So today I'm going to be coming out of the book of John and kind of going all over the place throughout the book of John. Um, But uh, for those of you guys who do not know, John was one of Jesus' followers. Now, Jesus had lots of followers, lots of people that would be considered disciples, but there were specifically 12 people that followed him closer than everybody else, referred to as his 12 disciples. One of them was a guy by the name of John. 
And once Jesus left, uh, they started going out, preaching the message. John was one of them. And pretty much they were, they were, their lives were being threatened. And, and so they were going around. All the, all the followers of Jesus just kind of scattered and eventually became martyrs. Matthew was burned pretty early at the stake. Uh, the apostle Paul was probably beheaded. Uh, the, uh, Peter was crucified upside down, and, and they were just all scattered and eventually became martyrs, a lot like what we're seeing in the church in Afghanistan right now. But John, what made John so special is that he was able to survive, that he would actually grow up to become an old man, that he would actually survive a lot of these attempts that were made on his life. And, and, so, and so here's what I kind of imagine happened, is that John grows up to become an old man, and he's, he's talking to all these people that he has ministered to over the years, and they're like, John, listen, man, we really appreciate everything that you've taught us over the last few years, but, I mean, you're getting to be old, and, and Jesus hasn't come back yet. I mean, they thought Jesus was going to come, like, later in the week whenever he originally left, and, but he hasn't come back yet. So, um, John, maybe you should write this stuff down. So we can continue to take your message beyond this. And John's like, well, okay, that sounds like a great idea. Let's do that. And so John sits down and he begins to remember all these stories, all these things that he saw Jesus do. And he starts to write his gospel, write, begins to write his gospel of Jesus. And he begins his gospel with this most miraculous, mysterious, yet so clear saying like that Jesus, that God sent the word and the word became flesh and refers to Jesus as this word, paints this beautiful picture. Honestly, one of my favorite passages of scripture is John 1, just the entire chapter of John 1. It's so, so great to read and just try and decipher. But he, say, he says that Jesus was this word and God sent this word, became flesh and, and he walked and he ate with us. And, and John paints this beautiful picture as if Jesus painted this, this painting. He painted this painting and, and he, God and Jesus sent himself into this painting to interact with the people within the painting. And then the people did not recognize the artist and so they threw him out. That, that kind of encapsulates John 1 as such a beautiful illustration of what, of what happened and how Jesus came into love. But in this opening, of section, opening section of John, he gives us these terms that kind of perfectly illustrate this tension that we, that we read about. And, and whether you're a Christian or not, you, all of us will bump into this tension at one point or another, and it makes things messy and inconsistent and hard. And so this is what John says. He said, the word became flesh and made its dwelling among us. We, we being him and his disciples, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son. Go ahead and go on to the next one who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And there's the tension right there. And, and so we know what grace is, right? We know what grace is, and we know what truth is. Grace says, no matter what you do, you're fine. Truth says, no, but you're, whole, you're held to this standard. You have to, you have to live like this. Grace says, you're fine, you're forgiven. Truth says, but you got, you're accountable. Grace says, it's, it's okay, everything's going to be all right. Truth says, no, you're going you're gonna to suffer a little bit. You're going to struggle a little bit with this. 
And, and there's a tension between the two of these. There's a tension between the two of these. And, and all of us, through our different personalities, we tend to lean in one direction or the other. It, one of the best ways I can illustrate this is some of you guys grew up in a home where you had two parents, right? And one of them was Grace, and the other one was Mr. Ungrace, wasn't he? He was Mr. Ungrace. And, and, and you would, you, your parents would argue behind closed doors on how they were to raise you just because they were wrestling with the same exact tension because they wanted the best result for you, right? And let me guess which one you liked more. Grace, right? We love Gracie. Gracie's amazing. Gracie is my best friend. I love Grace. All of us like grace. I like the way just, I like to think that I'm okay just the way I am. I like to think that I'm just fine. But if you grew up in a good home, you got good doses of both of them. And, and here's what John said. He said, guys, this is, this is what's so remarkable. He said, I watched Jesus work. I watched him work, and here, I spent years watching him, and I saw him navigate through some of the most difficult situations and circumstances. And as I begin my gospel, before I tell you any sort of stories about how Jesus did what he did, here's my description of Jesus. Here's what I saw, is that he had grace, and he had truth, but he was full of both of them at the same time, making something that we've never seen before, making something truly remarkable. Now, my problem is, is I like to push Jesus one way or the other. I, I personally relay a little bit better whenever it comes to talking to other people, the verses that talk about truth. The verses that say, no, this is how you got to live. This is, this is what you need to change right here. But whenever it's about me, I like the grace part. I, I like to feel the grace. And, and John says, guys, wa I watched him, and the best way I can describe it is that he was absolutely full of both of them. He was full of grace and truth. And then he says this, and out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Meaning that he just took this pitcher of grace and just poured it all over and it started overflowing and, and just, and even farther, for farther point of clarification, he goes on to say this, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth, this new thing, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And, and this is where I think our tension lies, is that we like to, we like to say we, we need a balance of both, which is true. We need a balance of both. But where we like to stop is just put about halfway in and just leave it there. And the problem is, is what this creates is wishy-washy. This creates wishy-washy people. And John says, I watched Jesus and he was absolutely full to the brim of both. Not, the not just the balance between, but the full measure of both. The complete embodiment of both. And this is what made Jesus so messy. It's what made him so confusing. And in some ways, it's what made him so unpredictable. It's because everyone wants to lean one way or the other. We choose churches that we want to attend because they tend to lean one way or the other. We like to push Jesus which direction we think that he ought to go. 
And John says, guys, I saw him, and he brought all of it, all of it to bear on every single individual that he talked to. He was grace, and he was truth in a body. And if you begin to read through the Gospels again, especially through the Gospel of John, you begin to see it through this lens a little bit. One, one, just a few examples. One day Jesus was uh, walking up to, him and his disciples were going up to Galilee. They were down south Israel going up to north Israel. And they were passing through an area called Samaria to get there. Now, Jewish people do not like Samaritans. That was just general culture. And so they're going through Samaria. They stop at this well within Samaria, and this Samaritan woman comes up to this well. You've probably heard this story before if you grew up in, you grew up in a church. The Samaritan woman stops, and Jesus asks her for a drink. Now, first of all, he is crossing multiple cultural boundaries here that you do not cross. Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Men don't even talk to women that they don't normally associate with, okay? So this is, this is crossing many boundaries here. And so he goes up to her and he says, hey, can you get me a bucket of water? And she, she's surprised because this Jewish man is, you know, talking to her. So she doesn't immediately or at all, really. We don't really have any instance in the story that she ever does. And so she doesn't, but she, they engage in this conversation that seems it can seem a little unpleasant, but at the same time, it wasn't, it wasn't bad. You know what I mean? It was just kind of, they were getting by, just little fun pokes at each other. But then Jesus says something to her. He, he says, hey, why don't, why don't you go into the town? Why don't you get your husband and why don't you bring him out here so I can meet him? To which she responds, well, I, I don't have a husband. And he says, I know. Why, why'd you bring it up, Jesus. And then he proceeds to dig into the most shameful, the most painful parts of her past and just brings it up. He's like, you're right. You don't have a husband. You actually have had five husbands. And the one that you're living with right now isn't even your husband. I don't even know what he is to you. Five different instances where it's obvious that she is not great in relationships with men. We don't know whether the people she was with got, she got divorced from or whether um, they died. We don't know what happened. But either way, five different instances that led to this relationship that she's in now where she is living with a man that she is not currently married to. And, and, and so he brings up this most painful and shameful part. I mean, like, Jesus, don't you know you, you just don't do that? especially with a person you've just met? I mean, where's the grace, right? Where, where's the love, Jesus? And then he ends up revealing something to this woman at the same exact time, the same exact conversation. Just right after he says this, he says, hold on, before you go anywhere, let me tell you something. Guess who you're talking to? Guess who I am? I, I haven't told anybody this yet. I haven't even told my closest followers this yet, but you are eyeball to eyeball with the Messiah. You are eyeball to eyeball with the Messiah. And I can quench your thirst of your soul. I can give you water that can quench the thirst of your soul that no man can ever fill. And so she leaves her pail there, so amazed with what she's heard. She heads into town to tell all these people who, to whom she probably has zero credibility that she's just met the long way of Messiah. Another example is um, Jesus, whenever he was recruiting his disciple, Matthew. He, he goes up to Matthew, this, and Matthew was a tax collector. I mean, like, 
you, you, I mean, you hated tax collectors. I mean, you really hate them now, but you really, really hated them back then. Like, they were traitors. They were Jewish traitors. We, did, we do not like tax collectors. And, and whenever looking through the New Testament, there was, I mean, like, there was always this separate category that tax collectors went, were in. You would read it, read stories, and you say there was, he hung out with the sinners and tax collectors. They were so bad, they had their own separate category. That's how much they really hated tax collectors. And Jesus looks at Matthew and he tells him, hey, why don't you get up, drop what you're doing, why don't you come follow me? And, and then Jesus' followers that were already with him were probably, wait, 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 Jesus, come, come, let's talk, let's talk for a second. Jesus, if we add a tax collector to our group, won't it look like that we hang out with tax collectors? I mean, do, do it, I mean, aren't you worried about that? And Jesus would have said, well, I mean, honestly, it's just about to get worse. After this, we're about to go over to his house, and he's going to invite over all of his tax collector friends, and we're going to have a big party. It's going to be a great time. If you were worried about your reputation now, you're going to have zero reputation after tonight. But Jesus, isn't it concerning to you that it might look like you approve what they do? To which Jesus would have said, what do you think I'm here for? I came to seek and save the lost. You think I care about my reputation? Oh, yeah. So confusing. What, how, how are we supposed to live? So confusing. Another example is whenever Jesus is at his crucifixion. He's hanging up on a cross and there's these two thieves, is what they're said, crucified right next to him. And, and, I mean, honestly, it says they're thieves, but, I mean, you crucify the worst of the worst people, right? These are people that can't even be trusted to become slaves. And, and so one of them is, is, like, just saying, we're getting what we deserve. And you expect Jesus to be like, no, nah, man, you got a good heart. Don't, don't worry about it. But actually, it's just silence a little bit. Almost the silence for Jesus to say, you're right, man. No argument here. You, I mean, you are getting what you deserve. But I'll tell you what, whenever you and I have breathed our last breaths, you and I will be in the same place. Whenever you breathe your last breath, you will join me in paradise. Now, whoa, let's, let's, let's time out. Let's take a few chapters back, all right? A, little, a couple chapters back, back when this young rich guy, Jesus, you remember this, this young rich guy come up to you and he said, hey, I, I want to have eternal life. How do I have eternal life? And you remember what you told him? You said that he'd have to sell everything that he owned and to follow and follow you for the rest of his life. This guy gets in at the last second and just gets to bypass all the years of trial that we have to endure? I mean, is, that seems so unfair. How, how can this even be? Why, why is this the case? This guy can't get in at the last minute. You see, there's a tension there. And I'm telling you, if you try to resolve it, you lose something so important. And then there's one of the most famous stories of all time. And then it makes its way into the Gospel of John. There's this woman who gets caught in the act of committing adultery. And, and, and they bring, they, these guys bring this woman, they drag her, throw her in front of Jesus. They all pick up stones and say, hey, Jesus, according to the law, this woman who's been caught in adultery should be put to death. We should stone her. And to which Jesus could, Jesus could, could have said this. He could have said, no, you're not stoning her. Not according to Roman law. According to Roman law, you're not killing anybody right now. But, but that's not what Jesus says. He says, okay, I'll bite. 
stoner. Do it. Go for it. But how about this? How about the person who doesn't have any sin, who has never committed a sin in your life? Why don't you, why don't you throw the first stone? Just try not to hit me. I got, I got a good thing going over here. The person with no sin, you start. The person who has not committed adultery in your own heart, you start. Throw the first stone. The person who has not looked at a woman lustfully instead of your wife, you start. And the law of Moses and the law of retribution all begin to break down. And everybody starts to feel so uncomfortable and they drop stone by stone and start walking away. And then Jesus stands up being the only person who by his standards can throw the first stone, looks at her and says, I I don't condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Now hold on, which one is it, Jesus? Which one is it? I don't condemn you or you're a sinner? I mean, to be a sinner is to be condemned. Yes. I don't condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. But Jesus, did you have to bring up the sin part? Yes, I did. Then how can you say she's not condemned? Because this is how I love. This is how I love. I am the embodiment of grace and truth. And you can go on and on and on with almost every single story that we see Jesus and how he interacts with the people. And us as the church, we try so hard to get this right. We try so hard to nail this on the head, and we don't always get it right. We don't, we don't always get this right. But we find ourselves in these difficult situations where we have to feel like we're juggling between these two things, and we're wrestling with this tension on the inside. I mean, I mean honestly, we find temptations where we want to just be the truth church. We want to say, hey, the, you, got, you got to do this. We want to point out everything that's wrong and make people feel so bad by the end. We want to bash the Bible over people's head and say, hey, you just need to know Jesus. Know Jesus. And I like that. I like, the, I like that. I like the principles. I like for people just to know that, hey, Jesus is here and he, he makes things better. But whenever it's me that's in trouble, I like the grace part. And so we're conflicted. We're conflicted with this tension. And we're trying to figure this out. Let me, let me share with you guys a quick story of um, an area where I am currently wrestling with this. And, and this, was, this is the one that's really been bothering me for the last couple years. Um, whenever I was a youth pastor at my previous church in Kentucky, there was this college-age student um, who I had grown to have a decent relationship with. He would come in and, and we would hang out and talk and um, to be flat out honest, he kind of drove me crazy. Um, he just, he was, he was so loud. He was so uh, energetic. He, he just, you guys know what I'm talking about if you know what I'm talking about, okay? He just drove me crazy. And he was just a lot. But you could always tell that he was searching for something. You could always tell there was something he was going after. And in other conversations that would eventually come up, I would come to know him a little bit better. I I would come to find out that he had grown up with an abusive mother, a mother that would beat him and his brothers, emotionally mess with them, emotionally pull their strings in different ways. I'd even heard from his older brother how he would intentionally take the heat for a lot of the things that his younger brother did 
so that he would receive the beating and save him from the, from the torment of that. And so through the emotional unpacking of this guy, we find that, I mean, he's just completely in search of a genuine loving relationship, searching for acceptance, searching for affirmation everywhere he can get it. And so I hear this story. I hear his story. And obviously my heart breaks. Obviously, my heart breaks for the guy, and I, continue, I want to continue to pour into him. I want to continue and, and see him come to know that Jesus fulfills all of those things that you're looking for, bud. If, if you just come to know him, he can fulfill everything that you want, everything that you need. And, and so we continue to pour into him, not just me, but a lot of other people in the church. And, and he comes like just becomes on fire for God, on fire for Jesus, on fire for people to come to know Jesus. And through the process, we also come to find out that he's amazing with kids. Kids absolutely love him. They, he, they love the energy that he brings. They love just getting to hang out with him. And, and so we thought, brilliant idea. We have this guy who loves kids and kids who loves this guy and who's on fire for Jesus. Let's use him in the kids' ministry to bring an energy to the kids' ministry to really want to uh, foster these kids to want to have a relationship with Jesus. And, and we see it work. It, it, he, it's amazing. We, we start to see all these kids come to know who Jesus is, and he starts making an amazing impact for the kingdom. And so he began serving. He drove everybody crazy, but we loved him. And we loved what he was able to do. And about two years go by, and the things about faith become kind of mundane. And we get this call one night that he had tried to get with one of our high school girls, which is a big no-no, right? And um, the parents weren't happy. I wasn't happy. It led to some hard conversations that needed to be had with him, and we had to pull him from serving. We had to pull him from being back there where he was shine the brightest. But at the same time, we wanted him to know that we loved him, and so we offered counseling sessions for him. We, we offered as much as we could for him. We paid for these counseling sessions for him, and he went through these counseling sessions, and he begins to go into this whole year-long process of becoming better because there was obviously still things in his past that he was having to wrestle with. And by the end of that year, by the end of that year, it comes out that he was out at a, um, out at a friend's, one of my friend's house who had um, sixth grade, a sixth-grade son. And he had a bunch of friends over that night, and he was hanging out with them, and the next morning, one of, the, one of the sixth graders steps up and talks about how he had been inappropriately touching them that night. And next thing you know, he's being sentenced to 11 years in prison. More cases come forward. And suddenly I find myself in the middle of a horrible situation here. I find myself in a situation where I feel like I've been taken advantage of and in a situation where I am just absolutely furious. Honestly, it's been about two years since this happened, and I still have the hardest time with this. Like, how do I continue to show grace to somebody who continues to just take advantage of me and hurt the people around me? 
Like, like what would I even say to him if I even saw him again? What he did was wrong. What he did was point blank wrong. And I have a lot to think about now. Like there's a part of me that wants nothing to do with him because not, not only do I want to protect the people around me, especially, but I have my own child to think about now. I mean, what am I supposed to do with that? And the hardest part, this is the hardest part, is that yet in the mind of Jesus, he still loves him as much as he loves my child. And, and, and so there's, there's this other part of me that's like, that we, we can't just abandon him. Somebody in the church has to reach out to him. It can be me because I needed to be there for my students. But my father was able to. And honestly, it's a, it's a time where I really commend my father for what he's done and been able to do. He was able to go down there and meet with him in prison. And, and was that conversation all rainbows and butterflies? Of course not. That was a hard, honest conversation. But at the same time, what this kid received, who had made an awful mistake, what he discovered is that even though he had made one, one of the most cardinal and awful sins that we could ever possibly dream up, that God still cared about him, that God still loves him, and that we still want to see the best for him. If you want to know what Jesus meant whenever he said to love one another, you watch how he loved. And you know how he loved. He called sin where there was sin, and then he paid for it. And having paid for it, he declared, I don't condemn you. And then he says to all of us, now, now that I've called sin where there is sin and paid for it and I said I don't condemn you, I want you to go and leave your life of sin. And if you don't, I love you. And if you can't, I still love you. And, and when you're so wounded by the shrapnel of your very own sin and you don't feel like there's any way of coming back from the complexity of your sin, I still love you. And if somebody has sinned against you and has sent you into this downward spiral of self-destructive behavior and you're not sure if you can ever recover from it, I love you. And the truth is, is that you're a sinner. But the grace is, is I don't condemn you. No one could ever, ever love you more than he does. But there's a tension there, isn't there? There's a tension there. And if you try to solve it, if you try to push Jesus in one direction or another, you give up something very important. Do you know why we need truth? The reason we need truth is because sin can get a hold of anybody, even us from the stage. Sin can get a hold of anybody. And so we need to throw out truth like it is our job. We do. We need to say this is what's true. This is what's true. This is, why you have, this is why you live a moral life. This is why you follow what Jesus says. This is why you need solid ethics. This is why you don't inappropriately touch sixth grade boys. Sin can get a hold of you, and I don't want it to get a hold of you. And the reason why we need grace is because to all of us, 
The sin has already gotten a hold of us. And grace is your only way back. It's your only way back to connecting with your heavenly Father. And so you need truth and you need grace. And if Jesus is the embodiment of grace and truth and us as the church to be his body, him at the head, then we have to learn to be comfortable with the mess and the inconsistency and the unfairness and all the other stuff that comes around grace and truth. And in my little experience, whenever it comes to church and what I have seen whenever it comes to the church is that the church is at its best, the church grows at its best whenever it embraces both. And it can recognize when both groups of parties who excel in either end have a remarkable place in the mission field for that. If you want to know what Jesus meant whenever he said to love each other, that's what it is. There it is. And it's messy and it's difficult and we don't know what to do with the tension at times. But we dare not walk away from it. We dare not leave it. Because there was a time in each and one of our own lives and there will be times in each and one of our own lives where we need massive doses of grace and we need massive doses of truth. And the church is to be the dispenser of both. And so let's be the church that's all about the grace of God. Let's be the church that's all about the truth of God. And let's continue to pray that God through his Holy Spirit can continue to unveil in us and help us manage this tension for his glory. So that everyone out there can know, yes, you've sinned. Yes, you're a sinner. But Jesus paid for it. And you're not condemned, and I do love you. Now go and leave your life of sin. But there will always be that tension there. There will always be that tension, and we cannot get rid of it. Let's be the unique group of people that refuses to let go of it. Let me pray for you guys. Father, we just love you so much, and we thank you so much for the opportunity just to come here and to feel your presence, to be here in your presence. Father, it's my hope and it's my prayer that, I mean, this can, what we hear here and what we, how we worship you here does not stay within these walls, but it becomes something we're so passionate about, something we, can, we want to take out to the rest of the world, something that we want to show to the rest of the world. And in, in this world right now that is just so broken, so divided, Father, I just ask that you give us the the courage, that you give us the ability, you give us the strength to really see where we can manage this tension, where we can live in this tension and be comfortable with this tension. And Father, for those of us who lean in different avenues to lean towards grace, to lean towards truth, I just, it's my hope and it's my prayer that we can begin to understand and begin to see other viewpoints because neither side is wrong but we fully push your grace and your truth. Father, we love you so much, and we thank you so much for this opportunity. And it's your name we pray. Amen.